Alright, welcome back to another episode of So They Should Be They She. And this week, my guest is Leela Jadav. Leela is a Oxford student studying English, uh, and she's involved herself in, in a lot of things that are happening in Oxford. And today, we're going to talk about being a woman of color, uh, being uh, a person of color at Oxford, and uh, her experience as a diaspora member. Leela, it's, it's a pleasure to have you on board. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Yeah, I'm really bad at the introductions. This is so like, much fun. I love it. <laughs> it's so awkward because I'm like, what do I say? Do I, do I want to sound like an announcer? No, okay. <laughs> so I, when I first started the show, I said, looked up announcing YouTube videos. And uh, when they, you know, you had those little uh, like fairs with announcers and they're just like selling off things. Yeah. I got, I, I tried to like mimic them, but it's a bit of a failure. No, it's fun. This is so exciting. All right. So what year are you at Oxford? So I'm a fresher, but I took a gap year. Um, but yeah, okay. I'm a fresher. All right. So any interesting uh, gap year stories? Um, let me think. Did you discover yourself? No, I was kind of like, I kind of just traipsed around and did random things in different places. But mm -hmm. I wish, like looking back on it, I kind of wish I traveled more. But like I kind of, so I went to like Kenya and then I went to India and then I went to some other places to like do work experience in different places and like build up kind of experience in different things. But I didn't actually, I wish I'd done more. I feel like your gap here should be just for like pure travel in many ways. Not discovering yourself. I think you discover yourself through pure travel, okay. um, and I wish I'd done more of that because you know what? Maybe I would have found myself along the way, but I've got time, so. Okay, you can yeah. take another gap year. Yeah, uh, exactly. <laughs> um, so wait, so you went to India? Uh, mm -hmm. Where did you go? And how I long? went to so I went to Chennai, which is where my family are, and I was there for a month. Um, and I was there working with the Hindu, which is like a guardian. Of That's a huge issue in itself. Uh, yeah. Press press standards, uh, especially now in such a pivotal time uh, mm -hmm. in within India. Did you do you see any of that? Like, um, yeah. I don't know if you've heard the news, but it, the Hindu isn't involved in this, but I think a week ago, uh, they're calling it the Cobra Post, and, and mm -hmm. people basically discovered how these media houses were um, taking money to sell news or sell propaganda. Mm -hmm. And like Times of India, Times Now, all these big, big networks. So did you ever experience that somewhat? No, I think TOI, Times of India, is much more complicit in a lot of that stuff. The Hindu's okay. always been like decisively on the left of Indian politics, whether mm -hmm. that's on the left of politics globally. Like that's another discussion. Mm -hmm. But that's why I chose to work with the Hindu. Um, what I, yeah, I sort of, I was, because uh, obviously I'd read a couple of Hindu issues before going in. And I was involved in, like, I did a lot of, like, reading and editing and stuff. Well, editing and quotations, but a lot of reading for the purposes of editing, but no one ever used my edits. Um, and I felt like, considering how highly the Hindu, like, sees itself, the quality of the English and the quality of the writing was quite poor, um, mm -hmm. in my opinion. But then, you know, obviously that's an instinctive reaction for someone who I think grew up in the UK. Um, right. And I kind of mediated that by like remembering that it's not, it's not, I think the Hindu isn't read by people who have, who like see the quality of the English as the primary concern, right? Whereas I think with The Guardian, a lot of the writing is about how well it's written, like how like fluently and eloquently the message is brought across. Whereas for the Hindu, I think it was a lot more about how quickly someone can gain the information that they need to get from the news. Mm. Um, so I think they cater to like probably quite different audiences in that sense, but I would... Yeah, I would say the quality of the writing in the Hindu didn't strike me as anything, like, prestigious or, or good, mm -hmm. um, which was quite disappointing considering how, like, how much they sort of, how highly they hold themselves in regard, I guess. But, um, yeah, I, I still think it's a great newspaper. Go read the Hindu, guys. Like, it's not that bad. The lifestyle section, I wrote an article for that. That's quite good. So, let, let's back up. Mm -hmm. uh, I, so, you're through and through a diaspora member. Um, yes. A diaspora member. Um, I think it was in 2011 when the census came out, uh, the Indian government also 
uh, put out a statistic about how many DAFTA members are living abroad, and mm-hmm. it was around, I think, it was the second biggest uh, next to China, and then they said that obviously um, that would increase, but it was around 30 million to 40 million diaspora members. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sorry, citizens of India. Uh, and then diaspora member, obviously, they can't really equate because they have mm-hmm. no um, yeah. record of. So you were born and brought up in London. Yes. Um, what does India mean to you? Um, whoa, big question. Broad uh, question. <laughs> uh, I think that's quite a di- like my answer to that would be quite dynamic. It changes like kind of almost every day, every week. I think like you go through. Well, I went through this phase. I don't want to speak for like entire diaspora um, because I don't think I can. No, do you're that. speaking for yourself. Yeah, yeah. So when I think I went through a phase when I was like sixteen to nineteen, where I was very much like India is my home. Like fuck the UK. Like mm-hmm. India is where I belong. Like when I go to India, I feel like my people have like met me in my heart just like weird (laughs) stuff like that where you're like trying to connect to a culture because Mm -hmm. you feel like it makes you special i think in a way or like you feel like it's a lost part of you that you want to reclaim makes you special or makes you comfortable uh both i think a lot of it what especially when you're a teenager in the uk is about making yourself feel special um Mm -hmm. at least i think it was for me a little bit but i never really let myself think that because you can you know you have an edge on a lot of what your white friends which you've never had before because you've Mm -hmm. always i think felt like you could never like click into their culture um, and so finding something else that makes you feel like you don't need to click into their culture because you have a different like set of like a framework to tap into makes you feel like you can use that to alleviate yourself um, ele- elevate yourself sorry and that was a d- definitely a phase I went through and I think you you go through that and then you come out of it and you're kind of like okay so I don't really feel at home in India so I'm not going to pretend I do I don't necessarily feel 100% at home in the UK but that's kind of okay and I think part of being diaspora for me is existing within like two spaces and learning how to reconcile them with each other. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you say you're British Indian, mm. you know, are you more British or are you more Indian? Um, I'd say it's hard because I think they both Or come, are you British Indian? Yeah, <laughs> I think they both come with a lot of like different connotations and I wouldn't like put myself in either field mm-hmm. um, because of I think how other people would see those two British and Indian concepts. But I would say for myself, um, I'd see myself as a Londoner, does that make sense? Like, mm-hmm. I don't think I'm British. I never really feel British. If I went outside of London, I'd feel like an outsider. But within London, I feel very much at home. Mm-hmm. Um, and that kind of translates across. So within Mumbai and certain parts of Mumbai, I feel very much at home because it's like a busy, fast-buzzing city. Right. Um, there's like a dynamism and a, and a multiplicity of it that feels... So it's more about like the metropolitan feel. I think it's much more about the metropolitan feel because I think, especially if you're diaspora, if you live within a metropolis, mm-hmm. you will, it's much easier to feel at home because there are like sort of signs of your culture and your like hybridity everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and I grew up in Shepherd's Bush, which is quite a diverse area within London. Um, and I, I was always surrounded by people who weren't, you know, English, English all the way through. And yeah. that felt quite comfortable for me. And that's why I think London is so special because whether you identify as British or Indian you don't ever need to properly think about that if you don't want to because London is so full of people just getting on with their life but with a hybrid of identities. Right. So coming from what you said, like the you weren't surrounded by people that were English-English mm. and then coming to Oxford now, um, yeah. how's that transition? First of all, how is Oxford? Um, Oxford's... Especially in that Oxford's. diversity um, <laughs> issue and, and, and more so feeling comfortable here because what mm. you're saying is you felt comfortable with, with the diversity, you felt comfortable with the... yeah complexities that that London offered you Mm. um diverse backgrounds so I think it's it's hard for me because I I went to a very white school in London Mm -hmm. so all of my friends have always been white like I've grown up around um 
you were the diversity. Yeah, I was a token diversity in many ways. Um, So coming here in that way wasn't too much of a shock. I think what did make it more of a shock was because, like I said, from the ages of 16 to 19, I went through this transition where I was like, whoa, my culture, like, Mm -hmm. and then you come here and you're like, everyone's white and this suddenly feels weird because I've got back in touch with a side of myself that I sort of forgot about all the way through school. Mm -hmm. Um, So it feels like a kind of a new affront of whiteness. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think like all the women of color I know, it's kind of difficult when you come into a space that's so um, different to you and to how you want to exist, I guess, in that space. Um, And I think uh, it's in the subtle things, so it's in the fact that like when you walk down the street, you might not see a single brown or like non-white face, um, mm-hmm. and that can be quite strange, especially when you know you're trying to escape from an all-white college, and then mm-hmm. you're like, whoa, where do I go? Like, what do I do? Um, yeah. And I think, um, yeah, I think Oxford's the kind of place that you just have to get used to, and I also think that it's hard because when you you know you use the phrase women of color obviously that in and of itself is such a paradox you don't know women of color has the same experience as any other women of color um and i think even by using it as a kind of homogenizing term Mm. you forget that even within each woman of color there is a kind of plethora of experiences that make them a human as well so like they all have but those women of color have a different experience than let's say a white woman or a white man Mm, completely Um, in a structural way but i do think that also it's easy to forget or omit the fact that we are all like human and okay a lot of my strong selves might be because i'm a woman of color but a lot of them might be because you know i'm scared of spiders or i don't like talking in front of large groups of people for example I do but like for example it could be that and that's Mm -hmm. not necessarily related to the fact that I am a woman of color it might be but it might not be and I Mm -hmm. think the minute we start only talking about experiences as a woman of color you forget that there are all those other experiences that just come with being a person um, which I'm quite cautious about because you know bridging like kind of putting people together as people of color is quite a white thing to do because you're kind of looking at everyone who doesn't look like you and saying okay they're a homogenous group and i'm a different group right. whereas even within the, like people of color group yeah. you know you get brown people you get black people like you get people from everywhere but i mean isn't isn't that the work that you do i mean you do the women of color chit chats mm-hmm. um at Wadham college that's how i found out about you yeah um and specifically on the in the description i remember it's like if you're a woman of color mm-hmm. uh woman and woman of color. Yeah. Uh, or no, no, you said woman and of color, right? Self-identifying women and non-binary people. Please come, guys. <laughs> okay. All right. Okay. So, so, but you're already alienating mm-hmm. and putting yourself as the other. Yeah. Right? I think a lot of that comes from the fact that when you, it's kind of like a reverse of power, I think. Mm-hmm. So when you are homogenized as a group of women of color, the an easy thing to do is to be like, no, fuck that. Like, I want to be my own person. Like, I'm Indian. I'm not, my experience is so different from a black woman. Like, I'm not mm-hmm. going to allow myself to be grouped like this. And then you end up with a lot of disparate kind of threads that all work against each other, but are also trying to work against the bigger kind of structural issue. Yeah. Um, and I think the purpose of having a woman of color collective is that it's defeating that through its own means, if that makes sense. You're like collecting as a group as a very group that white people are homogenizing you as, but using that collective kind of discrimination to talk and to talk about your experiences and how they might be different from someone else's experience. But at the end of the day, because you're seen as that group, you might as well use that collectivization to, I guess, form solidarity or to fight back, if mm-hmm. that makes sense. So so obviously you're you're leading this. Um, it, it makes me think that when you talk about discrimination, mm-hmm. have you faced that? Um, that's, I guess that's a complicated question. I think... 
when I run the Women of Colour chat and chill, in no way do I see myself as the leader. I think I just see myself as bringing people together. Sure, yeah. And I think the reason I'm able to do that is because I do have a lot of privilege. Like, my parents are doctors. I went to a fee-paying school in West London. Like, I was able to take a gap year because mm-hmm. I could afford that and then mm-hmm. come to Oxford. Um, and a lot of that kind of links in with common ground in the way that, um, you know, it's not necessarily run by all the people it's meant to help. Same with the women of colour, chat and chill. I run it when, you know, maybe a woman of colour who's from a working class background or an international woman of colour should be running it because it should be catering to those who face the most discrimination. Mm. But I also feel massively that it shouldn't turn into an identity politics thing in that way. It should be that because I have so much middle class privilege, I I'm able to carry that emotional, sorry? Upper middle class. Sorry, upper middle class privilege. I'm much more able to carry that emotional burden, I think, and it's much more my responsibility to carry that burden than it is for someone who actively faces the kind of wave of discrimination on a daily basis. I think if I am able, because of my privilege, to organise and to bring people together through that, Mm -hmm. then I definitely have the responsibility to do that. But it is in no way kind of me saying, oh, I have all these issues, everyone come and like listen to me talk um that's not how i see my role and i think it's and i don't envision that as as that no but i think it's very easy for us to do that i think it's very easy to forget that there are like class divides um Mm -hmm. and structural divides between even women of color Mm -hmm. and that you know especially within oxford because it's quite a, a white upper middle class place i can much more easily fit into that framework than my women of color friends who are from like less upper middle class backgrounds um and that's something that i have to be very conscious of otherwise i kind of group myself with them which is unfair on them because i don't have the same disadvantages as they do yeah so uh, still like being an indian being Mm. um and and you've had an experience in in janae where you worked but um also here i'm talking about the personal discrimination that you faced Mm -hmm. if if any at all yeah have you um let me think i I think when you're If you in, have to think, then that's a good thing. Yeah, it's definitely like <laughs> I've never since coming to Oxford faced like active discrimination from anyone being Is that like, your is that because you're able to blend in so well? I think partly because I'm able to blend in so well and partly because at Wadden it's not the kind of place, luckily, where you get a lot of the people who are very ignorant. I think Can you give a can you give a little background of Wadham to, to viewers um, that don't I mean know? I obviously have my reservations about Wadham. I think part of it's quite performative, but the essence of and the core of it is mm-hmm. a, a, a group of people who are open minded and progressive and aware um, and tolerant. And that's the kind of community it seeks to create. And I think overall it does actually create that community quite well. Um, it's a special college um, and it's a special place and I think because of that we face less of the kind of culture that other Oxford colleges might perpetuate of <laughs> sort of ignorance and all the rest, elitism and all the rest of it. Um, but I would say that a lot of my friends have faced discrimination in Oxford um, from tutors or from like just white people. Um, and I think- In what way? Uh, I don't really want to speak for them, but I think, like I was going to say, a lot of it's quite subtle. And I think we mm-hmm. all face a lot of the subtle subtlety of it, especially when you're brown, because I think when you look at the types of like, tropes that you face being brown a lot of it is people assuming that you know you work really hard and you don't go out and you're kind of shy and you're kind of awkward and you like you're quite submissive and passive as a woman um Mm -hmm. and those are the tropes that we face that i think are quite different to the tropes that other women of color might face um so a lot of it will be like tutors talking over you or white people talking over you or people assuming that if they don't see you for a while it's because you're like working really hard in your room or people assuming that you don't want to go out or that you don't smoke or that you don't you know drink without 
actually asking without knowing because it's just mm. a trope that you fall into. And I think a lot of that feeds into a social dynamic more than it does into anything else. Um, it's this kind of separation where because you're Indian, you're automatically seen as a shy, kind of slightly lame, nerdy person and you right. have to work against that to prove to people that you're actually normal and that you can actually be like them. Um, and I think that's something that is a subtle form of discrimination that's very, very hard to work against because it isn't something active. You can't shout at someone for it. You can't get angry. Um, but I think I face quite a lot of that. And I know that a lot of my Indian friends have faced that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's obviously quite difficult. You know, one thing that I've, I guess, faced, so I come from a very privileged background. Yeah. Um, I've had it uh, the best of the best growing up, even though mm-hmm. I went to a school in Arab, Alabama, where mm-hmm. I legitimately made up the diversity. Um, <laughs> everyone else was white Caucasian. Yeah. But even there, and then I went to New York and, and stuff of that nature, I've never had it where I felt so, I don't know, I felt so brown before yeah, coming yeah. here. Like, especially, like, for example, like, walking out in the streets, right, at post-dark, 9, 10 p.m. Mm. Um, I know how many turns I get back of, like, women or men walking in front of me, and they mm. fear that I'm, like, coming yeah. back on them. Mm-hmm. And it's so awkward because I'm listening to my, like, headphones. I'm not, like, paying attention to the world, but then they stop. Yeah. And I literally, like, I for the first, when I first moved here, I, I couldn't tell why people were just mm. stopping and letting me go by. And then I finally caught on. But it's happened 10 to 12 times where people will literally yeah. stop on the side of the sideway because I'm following them and following them mm. and using quotations, but I'm just going my way. Yeah. Um, and I don't realize, I've never realized that I'm a, you know, tall brown man yeah. that might be perceived as someone scary. And I've never really, and that, I guess that's my privilege talking, mm. but I've never had that until I came to Oxford. Yeah. And that's, I think, that's obviously really shit. And also I think quite classic and an experience which a lot of people will relate to. Um, and it is, it is crap, and it is... I never thought I had yeah. the ability to scare so many white elderly women. I know, it's insane, and it's also... I, I kind of feel powerful with that. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe keep that on the down. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I agree with you. I think I've also, like you, despite going to a basically all-white school, I've never been more conscious of my race than coming to Oxford. And I don't know what it is about this space that makes you so conscious of it. I don't know whether it's because it's another way subconsciously to feel different and feel special and, like, mark yourself out from everyone else who is you know, so overachieving, Mm -hmm. or whether it's kind of a deeper, like, I guess, air or environment of, of like, discrimination or elitism, where you just can't feel in place because you're just not part of that, and you're Mm. not, you never structurally will be, and I think things like that, people turning or stopping and letting you go past, are just very obvious signs of a, of a potent, like, air of malcontent and an air of kind of just negative, I guess, vibes towards people of colour, and I think that's very pervasive everywhere um, and it might even us. be it might not i mean i feel like it might not be on purpose but i guess that's yeah. just what they like you know like so i don't want to blame it them it's yeah. just that's the bias that they've grown up with and that's yeah. the that's the mindset that they i have. think that's so true that's my main issue with oxford is that i don't think many people are consciously racist i really yeah. fundamentally don't i think so much of it and why it's so difficult is because people are so subconsciously racist and i think the issue with that is that you know at the end of the day we're all socialized to be sexist and racist and the minute you start telling yourself i'm not racist i'm not sexist it's the it's the kind of second that percolates down into your subconscious and it's like once it goes there it's very hard to confront and be like okay i have these views that i've been brought up with or society's told me are right i need to confront them and like decolonize myself from them and until i guess white people realize that and accept that and start to counter that you don't really get anywhere which is why i think the subconscious bias thing is so dangerous because it's so it is so subconscious and it's so in, invisible mm-hmm. to them um and that i think is the main issue in oxford 
so I want to move out of Oxford a little mm-hmm. bit. Um, let's talk about more of like your relationship as a diaspora member and your relationship with with India. Um, how is that? Like, what do you you know? Like, and I know again, I'm asking these broad questions because it it, it depends on you, right? It, yeah. It's a it's a lot on you. So let me say, like, what what does it mean to you to be a, a member of the Indian diaspora? Like, like growing up, like you said, you really wanted to be part of that culture from 16 to 19. Mm. What were you doing that was out of, like, your comfort zone to make it seem like you were Indian? You were embracing your culture in, in, in class. And it's not just about, yeah. you know, like, wearing saris to prom or balls, mm. et cetera. But what made you feel more more Indian? Um, I think... It wasn't something that I actively started doing. It was more embracing things that, like, my family would do. So, for instance, when, like, I come home after school every day, like, from when I was born, my family would be playing Carnatic music on, on the, like, speaker system, or my parents would be cooking Indian food. Um, and whenever I brought friends home, that always really embarrassed me. And I was always like, oh, we'll just go away and come back. Or, like, haha, it's like, this noise is so funny, lol. Um, and I hated myself for doing that. But I think when I got to 16, mm-hmm. I kind of told myself that that isn't how... I'm going to treat my culture anymore, I'm going to be proud of it, and I'm going to show that I'm proud of it. And it was a really, really difficult process of, like, walking in the door with, like, for example, my white boyfriend and not trying to make fun of the way my house smelled or the kind of food my parents were cooking or how loudly people were talking or what music was playing. Um, And that was something I actively started to do when I was 16, is to stop apologising, I guess, for my culture. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think, like... What else did I do? Um, did you ever stop embracing it too? Like, I know you stopped apologizing for it, but yeah, um, I went through a phase where I stopped eating Indian food because I didn't yeah. want to smell like yeah, quote curry. One hundred percent. Pasta was like my dish of choice. It's still, I think, deep down. Pasta's it's, good though. Pasta's fucking incredible. <laughs> but also, it's just there's something about like Indian food that makes you feel different, and like eating with your hands is something I'd never do in front of my friends ever because it would just be embarrassing. I remember going to my friend's house. And they'd ordered an Indian takeaway and I ate with my hands for the first time in front of white friends and they all stared at me and laughed at me and I just kept going. And that was quite a pivotal moment because that was such an embrace, I think. Of okay, what did you eat with your hands? Like um, rice and... It was paratha. Oh, paratha. You're going to eat paratha with a fork they and nut? cut it up, man. Like, that is so do. white. Isn't that bizarre? I know. Wait, with a paratha? Like, no, I, I, I was imagining, I was about to be like, okay, Indians don't eat, like, with like their hands with rice and stuff they okay do. we've i mean yeah but i in mean the south they still do but, yeah but i mean primarily they 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 do use spoons with those things exist in really? india I mean, yeah they, i mean obviously spoons exist in india but yeah. all my family members and all my family friends still mm-hmm. eat rice with their hands i think so do you still uh, eat it on the bay leaf as well uh occasionally in special yeah. occasions yeah yeah so uh I've, I've been to weddings we've done that because yeah. that's like the traditional cultural but like on a very daily like so if you go to a restaurant and you ask for rice and gari or if to you ask, that restaurant's different yeah yeah or even homes like i mean the spoon is but i see i was thinking that i wasn't imagining the baranta and the roti wait no. baranta and roti with a fork yeah it's a bit weird they like cut it up and like kind of like a weird pizza i don't really get it wait they eat their pizza with a fork and knife a lot of people to be fair i sometimes eat pizza with a fork and knife just because it cools down quicker <laughs> In a weird way. I, I'm giving you a judgmental look. Okay, okay, yeah, <laughs> I'm really sorry. I'll never do it again. Please don't. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, it's a weird thing where they just don't want to get their hands dirty. Um, uh, which I also like, I think rationally for like maybe internalized racism, I just get. And that's why it's so hard to like take the plunge and be like, I'm going to use my hands. Because mm-hmm. then your hand gets dirty and everyone looks at you in a kind of gross way. Yeah. Um, but you just like, again, you just have to, I think, embrace that as a part of your culture and like in a way see it as... I'm not having to use some weird metal, like, 
sticks to eat my food I can just use my hands and it's just kind of stupid that you can't um so you sort of have to see it like that but it is a difficult thing to do I think Mm -hmm. so um were you ever into like so one of the main ways that especially in London New York um the main way that diaspora connects back um is the movies the music yeah uh, a lot of like that that culture right the pop culture in a way yeah. Did you try to do that or were you always out of that? And um, It's kind of weird because I know a lot of diaspora Indians have a, a quite a wide network of other diaspora Indians. They mm-hmm. like hang out with like family, friends, all the rest of it. And my parents never did that. They kind of moved away from India to get away from what they saw as quite a suffocating, judgmental, um, weird nexus. And they mm-hmm. came here to kind of do things on their own. Um, my dad was um, a Dalit and my mom was a Brahmin. So the whole casting thing. Whoa. Well. Yeah. So high five <laughs> to your mom and dad. I know they made it. Um, Holy they came shit. here. I know they came here and they were like, we just don't want anything to do with that kind of side of India. Um, so I grew up without any real Indian influences. Like my parents' friends are all like, kind of quite intelligent academics or like psychiatrists or doctors. Um, and a lot of them are white. Some of them are black. Some of them are brown. But in no way was that like an Indian influence on mm. me. So I kind of. And I really miss that, miss out on that actually. And I feel sad sometimes because I talk to my Indian friends here or my cousins who have all of these Indian cultural influences, like Kabi Kushi Kabi Gum, or like all these <laughs> songs that they know, all these like wedding dances that they know. And I am not as in touch with that. I think partly because my parents, whilst they might have introduced me to it, never forced me or never pushed me to be Indian. Like I was very much allowed to exist as a kind of fake white Do you think person. that's forced in your other friends? I don't think it's forced, but I think it's much more a part of like how they grow up. Mm-hmm. Whereas it was never, I think my parents were very careful to never push me in either direction, um, which I really value and appreciate, but it does mean that I have less of a strong Indian cultural influence mm-hmm. than a lot of my friends. Wait, can can we go back to your mom and dad? Yeah, sure. Can, oh, like, what, so what's their story? I want to know. <laughs> um, they were both at med school together, um, mm. which is really cute. But um, yeah, so they just met at med school and then got together and it was quite... Where in med school? Like where in uh, GMC, or? so Grant Medical College in Mumbai. In Mumbai, okay. Um, and yeah, I think it was quite... I don't know a lot of the details, I think, probably deliberately, but it's, it was quite a... And I'm assuming they had a, yeah. Yeah, they had quite cool. a hard time. What about um, what about your grandparents had? Yeah, I don't think my grandparents were... My grandparents are still on... Hopefully you never hear this, party, But <laughs> <laughs> my grandparents are still, I don't think, a huge fan of my dad. Um, Sending this to your party. Yeah, they <laughs> can't wait. Um, but yeah, and so I think that's always like played into family dynamics a bit. And mm-hmm. because my grandparents are Brahmin, my cousin had a thread ceremony. Um, yeah and I didn't go, my parents didn't go to the thread ceremony, and there was like this big like, whoa, why are you like trying to take us away from our culture kind of thing, but mm-hmm. um, so there's been a lot of, I think, tension because of that. Is your mother a Tambram? Yeah. Ooh, that makes it even. I know, I know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm such a weird like mix, <laughs> but um. You're, yeah. uh, you're a true mudblood. <laughs> I'm truly, truly Hermione Granger, right? <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, it was, it's been, I think because of that, when we, when they came here, they were very much like trying to separate themselves from what they saw as quite a like negative the negative aspects yeah. yeah yeah that's interesting so yeah. so in a way you were isolated from that because of I guess the struggle that your parents came out of yeah m- very true and in in a in a way I'm also kind of glad I was because I think I've grown up with a lot like I have I think a huge amount of self-confidence for a brown woman um hmm. I'm very like I've never gone into anything thinking that I don't deserve it or I can't get it um, mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people can see that as arrogance, but I just perceive it as the way I was brought up was very much like if you want something, you can go and get it. Like you're perfectly capable. And you don't think that's that's um, 
across the board for other members or I other think, Indian women of color? I don't think it is, but obviously I can't speak for every Indian woman, but a lot of the brown women of color I've met mm-hmm. have these invisible obstacles in their head where they feel like they're not good enough and they feel like they have to like apologize or... And that's a that's an upbringing thing. I think it's it's not a, like a deliberate upbringing thing. I'd mm-hmm. never ever say that. I think any parent wants their daughter to grow up feeling like they can't do anything. But I think it's a part of an Indian cultural tradition mm-hmm. of seeing women as lesser than men, which I think is still very obviously so pervasive in India. Mm-hmm. Um, and I never had access to any of that, which I'm quite grateful for. That's interesting. See. Again, I guess that's my privilege speaking as a yeah. Indian brown male. Um, I've I, like what you say. It's like I've never had that feeling of I can't do anything. Yeah. Like I never had yeah. that support. And I think as a man, though, it's also quite different, right? So like, if you're a brown man in an Indian family, they'll be like, "Yes, my son, please go do it." I like your Indian accent. <laughs> Thank you so much. Is that the Tambram accent? One hundred percent. Is the that the <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, so I was talking to my friend um, at my college who you know was raised went to quite an Indian school, like have a lot, has a lot of like Indian women of color friends. And she was saying that she doesn't know many Indian women who are very self-confident and who feel like they can just get anything they want. Mm-hmm. So I do feel like from that, it, it feels like my experience has been quite different. But then again, like she's obviously not speaking for the entire diaspora. So yeah. I don't really know, but I do feel like it's, it's an quite, individual struggle. It's an individual struggle. And I yeah. think it's, it's so important for women of color to be raised to be empowered and i think all of society is working against us to tell us that we can't be empowered right um it, it's so weird because there's so many groups where you say it's like i can't speak for you know one yeah. specific society or the diaspora because you see these trends in the diaspora mm. but you also don't see them in the diaspora in the mm. same ins- instance you see them in let's say rural india yeah. let's say in a village in haryana right you will have those dynamics where mm. the woman is um really sh- not just sheltered but very in a way closeted yeah. right and restricted but at the same time, you I, going to NYU, right? Um, seeing these women come from you know these metropolitan cities or even rural cities, and being able to chase those dreams was also very, I, th- I guess, like goes against the standard that we project yeah. and see. So uh, one one of the biggest things I'm like picking up is is it, you can't really say okay like this section of society or this group of people all go through that cycle. It's a very individual yeah, group. It's and really it, difficult, yeah. And it, and it's right, like it's correct that a lot of people especially part of the diaspora which i've seen is fairly more conservative mm. now than urban india yeah um you see a lot of that happening in, mm. in the diaspora i think it's really really tricky because again like this whole thing of being like ah oh, in my core i'm an indian is such a difficult dynamic for a diaspora person because at the end of the day you're not indian in the same way that a person growing up in india is indian. well what does it mean to be an indian right exactly but i think it's very easy to co-opt into a culture that isn't yours um mm-hmm. and i i think a lot well I think I probably spent a bit of time very much being like oh I'm Indian uh, but like I I was still like I was still completely different to a lot of the Indian women I knew and I think there was yeah. I don't know what exactly I'm trying to say but I felt like there was something slightly problematic about being a diaspora woman of color and claiming to be Indian and claiming to speak for a lot of Indians in a way that I just didn't think I had the authority to now for instance stuff like cultural appropriation which I'm so against like, I remember talking to my parents about it, and there was this thing a while ago in Australia where they used, like, Ganesha in an advert. Do you remember? <laughs> yeah, and, like, there was a huge uproar about it, and everyone was like, how dare you, like, co-opt our gods to make an advert about meat? And I was so angry, and I was like, have you seen this? Like, how dare fucking Australians, who do they think they are? And my parents were like, yeah, it's bad, but they made this really interesting point about how, because the way India is going is so much more towards the right, 
right now. Um, I think they saw the backlash towards that kind of Western co-option of Ganesha as very much feeding into this narrative of like, oh, we hate the Westerners, we need to stay true to our conservative right. Indian, like Hindu selves, like big up the Hindus, we hate white people. And it's very hard when, as a diaspora like person, you perpetuate that as well, because mm-hmm. so much of what you're saying feeds very easily into that narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, and that made me think quite hard about how much privilege I have as a diaspora girl and how, how I need to use that and how angry I get over certain things versus other things. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense? No, that makes yeah. complete sense. I mean, in the past at least three, four years, you see, and it's been going on for a very long time, but especially mm-hmm. in the past three, four years, you've seen um, a, a, an attempt to take over what it means to be Hindu and what it means yeah. to be Indian. Uh, now that I that kind of brought in, like, what about religion? Um, are you, like, what about, what, is, what, what does Hinduism mean? Um, or are me? you not yeah yeah to you and to your family as well uh we've never done anything hindu i don't mm, think we do Diwali, yeah. i think because it's fun but, but that's cultural come on yeah, yeah. it's so, true. it's yeah. so cultural but like we've never been it's funny because my cousins i think do a lot more hindu stuff than we do coming from a tan brown family yeah exactly we've <laughs> never ever been hindu like i've never identified as hindu i did sanskrit because i went to a school in london called st james where they taught sanskrit so i've done Whoa. sanskrit from when i was four to when i was 18 really um, yeah so you can write something and Sanskrit, you can, can re- listen it. to shlokas yeah um so a lot of my weirdly a lot of my influence as a child is like the mahabharata the ramayana um like the bhagavad-gita so this um, is what it means for you to be an indian right when, when, yeah. when you were saying that like 16 to 19 so you said you didn't watch the bollywood movies which yeah. is like you know the status quo yeah it's the maggie the you know like these yeah. very instances the limka thumbs up whatever yeah. or not even that but but yours is a very i guess it's a very different, you know, like, yeah. uh, so you, you didn't talk about this, so. Yeah, it's just a weird thing, though, because I don't, because I learned it in a very white atmosphere, like, St. James was a, at English school, I never mm-hmm. felt like it was directly connected to my Indian heritage, and then when I left St. James, went to a different secondary school, I kept up Sanskrit for my GCSE and my A-level, and, you know, you get to the stage with a language where you can read it and not have to translate it in your head, mm-hmm. and when I started to do that with, like, the Mahabharata and the Bhagavad Gita, it, like, really hit me that there was something so special about Sanskrit and something that made me feel special because I was connected to it. Um, so you've read, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm yeah. still like shocked right now. <laughs> so you've still, you've read Mahabharat and uh, the Ramayan uh, yeah. in, in Sanskrit. Not the whole Mahabharata. Uh, yeah, no, endless, but, but even yeah. excerpts. Yeah. Because yeah, yeah. someone who is super interested, I'm, I'm from Kurukshetra, yeah. which is basically yeah, where yeah. uh, Jyotisar Mahabharat basically took place. Um, and where the Gita was delivered. Crazy, yeah. So, so to me, like I've read English translations, I've mm-hmm. read Hindi translations, and tried to get through all of it. But then reading it in Sanskrit, yeah. that's crazy. Yeah, it's a different level, and it also makes you feel really empowered because a lot of the time when you're trying to talk about how great Indian history is, you can't mm-hmm. put your finger on why. You're just like, yeah, we were great, and you colonized us. But having like a knowledge of Sanskrit and a knowledge of the grammar behind Sanskrit, which is so like, like so mm-hmm. crazy complex. Mm-hmm. Um, really gives you something and it gives you something to hold on to and the way that you know the the language is crafted and the way it's built up on these kind of foundations of intense grammatical complexity is really special i think to the i don't know i feel like maybe to the indian psyche it always i always i kind of think about it a lot and i'm sort of like indians are so like there is a, a culture within india of being good at ma- maths and science and mm-hmm. this mathematical rigor and i think a lot of that stems in my opinion stems from the fact that Sanskrit is such a mathematical language the way you have to think about it is logic and maths and science and that's kind of a a psychological thing whereas you know English is such a amalgamation of different languages and different grammar and different logics that they all kind of play against each other 
and I see a lot of the English values being in the humanities and in history and in English and literature and mm. stuff. So yeah, I, I don't know, that's probably completely false in many ways, but I just it strikes me as an interesting pattern, maybe. So I, I'm still shocked. <laughs> I, feel I, mean, like I got a, a C in my A-levels. So it's, it's not it's, 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 uh, Wow. I think, so one thing that I'm just thinking about is um, I've partaken in a lot of religious rituals, especially yeah. Hinduism, and they're all uh, Sanskrit shlokas, right? Yeah. And being able to actually understand that and what's mm. being, I think that just adds another value to it, another yeah. dimension to it. Mm. Um, regardless if you're religious or not religious, right? That's mm. not what it is. It's that you're understanding because these, again, these rituals uh, are, are taken, whether it's in Kanyakumari or Kashmir, right? Yeah. And, and they partake in that. Mm. And they're all done in Sanskrit yeah. and Hindi. So that, that's crazy. It's crazy also because, like, obviously the language is so beautiful and, the, like, everything about it is so, like, amazing. You're like, whoa. But and the Mahabharata is all poetic, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, it's, yeah, it's really yeah. crazy. The yeah. Bhagavad Gita is, like, so stunning. Yeah. Um, but a lot of it's also, like, ridiculously casteist, which, like, I never pick up on, obviously, when you're younger. But, like, as you grow up and you're kind of, within like I think the sun the GCSE or the A-level Sanskrit curriculum there's a lot of like learning about the culture mm-hmm. and there's like they like give you all the different subsects of society so they put the Brahmin and then they put the like Kshatriya yeah. and then the farmer I can't mm-hmm. remember what one that and then the, mar- the like merchant and then the Shudras at the bottom and they give you the description of who that person is mm-hmm. and when you see like Shudra servant slash slave it's just a bit like, whoa, this is really not great. Like, but a lot of that is like also the British conceptualization, right? Yeah. So uh, it, it's not as simple as it was. I mean, mm. also those tiers did exist, yeah. but obviously the British came in with their influence and tried to simplify it for them to understand. Yeah, um, yeah. But it was very much part of the Sanskrit culture to have these separations because a lot yeah, of the way it's talked about in the Bhagavad Gita is to do with like the Brahmin will achieve, you know, this that yeah yeah ananda bliss or, or something yeah. like that and the shudra has to keep serving in order to achieve achieve this. yeah so there's a lot of that that's ingrained within the way krishna talks to arjuna in the mm-hmm. bhagavad gita but it's just interesting that those kind of things run so deep um within india i think oh that's awesome um wow so I, I i didn't realize that this is where uh this conversation would take but yeah neither but <laughs> no it's it's interesting to hear um what you know what it means to be a diaspora for you yeah i um, think again like we were just saying it's so individual so like yeah sanskrit is such a weird thing to do as a diaspora but so many diaspora that i know have their connected to india in bollywood and like yeah, the classification yeah. right so like i i could meet so many of the diaspora members that are mm-hmm. really connected to the culture tradition india right whatever yeah. that means to be but nowhere would they be able to connect in that in the terms of like Mahabharata Ramayan, yeah. reading Sanskrit, etc., yeah. um, or any other of like the languages that originated from mm-hmm. that um, region. Anyways, um, I think I've taken enough of your time. Um, <laughs> I would uh, first of all, I'm gonna send this to your body. Can't wait. Um, <laughs> uh, that's the first thing I'm gonna do. No but worries. thank you so much for coming. No, thanks for having me. It's been so much fun. Uh, it was a pleasure talking to you, and uh, you know. Uh, you've given a new definition of what it means to be an Indian diaspora. Cool.